Dotnet Rocks episode 596 with guest Billy Hollis. Recorded live Monday, June 28, 2010. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, by Haystack, and by Franklins.net. Training developers to work smarter. And now here's Carl and Richard. Carl and Richard on the .NET Rocks Live Weekend here. Hey, Richard. Hey, Carl. How you doing? I'm doing okay. It's our second to last interview. Sliding into the end, my friend. We've got a little brunch break coming up as well, but one of my favorite people in the world on the line. The oh. Reverend. Uh, Mr. Hollis. Hey, Billy. Hey, guys. You don't sound nearly as much like a basket case as I thought you would at this point. Hey, we're doing pretty uh, good, we're, actually. We're actually good, yeah. I, I got a, a good night's sleep last night, but, the boy, yesterday I was hanging pretty bad. And so I just want to apologize to the people who are in the chat room who uh, were a little offended that I just, like, left before the end of the show last night. But I was literally looking through the through my eyelids. Yeah, we were we we were both dragging pretty hard the end of yesterday, but today, you know, something about the last day too, that you're always hot, a little hopped up. That uh, well, yeah, you can use all the stimulants you have left. Yep. and just <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we got to drain that coffee pot. <laughs> yeah, take it down. Let's go. But I tell you what, though, this has been a very very enjoyable thing for us to do. I mean, we're not sitting in booths. We we actually have some comfortable chairs out in the studio. There's a nice you know, Indian rug between us, and there's a couch, and we're just, you know, hanging out. We got coffee, we got water, we got internet, we got a 65-inch plasma TV, we got really talented engineers at the console that are making everything happen for us, and um, a whole lot of people listening. Yep, stuff holding together pretty well. So, um... Billy, what's making you angry these days? <laughs> let's just <laughs> let's just start right you there. Just, just you just you just start right in, get me to rant. Don't that's you? in the business what we call a meatball. So. <laughs> is there anybody else that gets on your show that you, the primary purpose of them being there is to rant? That you oh, just yeah. kind of start off. Well, with? there's a few, but I don't know that anybody does it better than well, you do. Well, you know, Miguel Castro might come into a close yeah, second. He, he gets up there, but he's much louder. I think. Uh, I yeah, think I like true. your precision, actually. Yeah, you yeah. do it with style. And I gotta admit, you you are my favorite tweeter in the whole world. <laughs> this is pointless. Is but, the greatest tweets of all time. But I've I've kind of I stopped back in March because I did two thousand of them. Yeah, you hit your two thousand mark, and I may pick up back up at some point. Now I, I was thinking of collecting them together into a book called Two Thousand Pointless Twits. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Sign you me up. I want one. And, and you know, doing a little bit of 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 commentary on it, sort of footnoting some of them as to as to what I thought about them. Uh, now I I, I I still don't do serious twittering, and and I. You know, I, I see some value in Twitter now. I didn't used to see as a notification mechanism. Right. It's kind of the replacement for RSS feeds now. <laughs> so you can, you know you can search and find some things, and in that narrow category, I, I see some value. And then I still see just a whole lot of pointless stuff out there. Um, I, I see I see way too many twits that I'm, I'm twit tweets. Sorry, twits. <laughs> I have this habit of calling them twits. That twits on the Twitter. Say, Thus and so is full of crap. Yeah. Okay. And then I, I mean that's not exact. I guess you can't exactly do a nuanced argument in 140 characters. But but you know that's no excuse to do a drive-by insult on somebody. <laughs> drive-by insult. Yeah. Right. And uh, and then of course for some people they can do that and then they have their group of toadies. 
Right. I th- that chime right in. Yep, those are those full of crap. RT, snicker, snicker. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, like it's like junior high school there. And and it, you know and you know what the great thing about saying that is here on this that somebody will prove me right by putting up a twit yep. about how about this interview. And how full <laughs> of crap you are. Junior high level of reasoning. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. right. You know, and the thing is, 140 characters really forces you to say it with uh, succinctly, and that usually means with expletives or great fervor or just powerful words. I guess so, but, you know, the, 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 the Twitter advocates say it's all about the conversation. Well, you know, I like having conversations, but not in sound bites. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I want conversations to have ideas in them, and I'm not sure that you can put very many serious ideas in 140 characters. So I don't know that Twitter really is that good for conversations, at least not the kind of conversations I like to have. Now, there are people out there who are getting a lot out of it. You guys know I'm living, let live, buddy. If somebody's getting pleasure out of something, that's that's completely up to them to do it as long as they don't impose it on me. So so you folks that like Twitter, that sit around Twitter, tweet all day long, you, you go right ahead and have a lot of fun at it. And um, and then I'll continue, you know, being back and being cynical about it. <laughs> we'll, and we'll all live happily ever after. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, you actually, I think you nailed the Burma shave. The four messages <laughs> with the pun. You know, the fourth one is the punchline. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. When you lay out the book, you've got to have yeah. that Burma shave effect laid out well, properly. Well, yeah, I did. The, the multi-parter does seem to help some. I, I did a I did a two-parter that was my own, my I think my maybe my own personal personal favorite among the stuff I wrote there was I don't know I, I, at some point I was hearing some techno music and and my in my feed I put a tweet about how I don't get techno I can get better music by recording my dishwasher <laughs> <laughs> and and then the second part which was kind of my favorite all-time thing I ever made up was it's a good thing techno came along. After vinyl records, because with techno on vinyl, how would you know when the record was stuck? Uh, <laughs> it's like an alarm clock with a beat, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, so yeah, I, 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 I had a good time doing those, and and maybe when I'm back in a mood to do some more, I will. But I, I think it's time to recharge, and so I've left that off since March. I don't know when I'll get back to it. Nice. We've been talking a lot on the uh, Lost Weekend. The Lost Weekend? The Lost the Live weekend. weekend. I like the Lost Weekend. <laughs> yeah. Because <though. Yeah. laughs> it was kind of lost. Um, we've been talking a lot on the Live Weekend um, about various various technologies. HTML5 seems to be a, a point um, of speculation about uh, you know support for it and how much Microsoft is going to get behind it or how much they need to. Whether Microsoft needs to needs to support HTML5 on the Windows Phone 7 in order for it to be successful, or whether uh, whether it needs to be supported in Visual Studio more, you know, with designers and things, or uh, controls, ASP.NET controls that spit out HTML5. That's been a, a topic of interest, of course. Uh, well, let's start there. Why not, why not just stick to one topic at a time? I don't know that I have strong opinions about that. I mean, to me, that to me, that what it comes down to is this: HTML5 is going to do some things that yeah, the HTML platform should have. That, that it really needs. I, I started to say it should have had for a while, and that's not true at all. Because back when HTML was created, we didn't have the bandwidth for video, so right. folding video onto the platform wouldn't have been a, 
a smart idea then. We wouldn't have known really how to do it. So I'm glad to see that, and I'm glad to see some other things that, that because we're going to need a standardized way of getting content out on the web for quite a long time, and so HTML is, is due for some improvements, and I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm happy to see that. Um, but, I, you know, I've seen some demos of HTML5 at various places, and it, well, it does have some features that promotes content delivery. I, I, I don't know. In the application interface space, I don't see a lot of improvement. Um, I, I don't see anything like the maturity of what we have in Silverlight today, for example, uh, for application interfaces. The key idea to me, and, and I'm not enough of an expert to know how far they're going in this arena, is how much uh, state management we're going to be able to have on the client, how, how, how much we're going to be able to hold things in state for the user. I understand there are improvements there, but I don't know the details about how, how big a deal they are. But, I, I mean, I completely depend on that. I come from the smart client world, and I want to have that state to help the user experience. I want to remember things for the user. I want them to be able to suspend something that they're doing, make it invisible but hold it in memory, yeah. and bring it back. And I don't know if HTML5 is going to be a good platform for that or not. So I'm waiting to see some of these things to, to judge what just how important I think it I is. I think I'm taking a wait-and-see attitude as well. Um, and there is some new markup around local storage for web developers in the browser. I mean, it, it, HTML5 does have bits involved in that. So I think they, they've heard that need. Uh, it's, you know, I still think you're going to be in a browser. So if somebody closes the browser, stuff's going to go away. But yeah, uh, it's, yeah it's an interesting d- dynamic. You know, and the other, the, the other part of this is uh, the, um, you know, so Silverlight being a technology that is sort of locked down on the, on the phone. And, you know, this is what we were talking about before. <sighs> you know, the iPhone seems to have done fine having a locked platform, but that's because the iPhone was so in high demand that the demand sort of for apps sort of grew with the demand for the phone. Um, starting out with a, f- a new phone that nobody has um, and, and forcing people to use Silverlight. I mean, it's a good thing that Silverlight is easy to do from, you know, for the phone. That's really good, but Richard's point is well taken. That turns out, you know, Objective C difficult to use, but that's just fine when the incentive for cash is there. People will use whatever they have, painful or not painful. Yeah, well, I I used to have a a uh, a guy I worked for back early in my career that whenever you went to him talking about how something was hard to do, his response would be, if it was easy to do, anybody could do it, and we couldn't make any money at it. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know that the bar for Objective-C uh, is all bad in that respect. I mean, I'm a big advocate of simplicity. I'd certainly like to see our our the entire business sector able to have simpler ways of doing some fundamentally simple data-oriented apps. But when it comes to trying to sell something commercially, having a little bit of a, a barrier is the sort of thing that's going to keep some people out and, and, and be a straining mechanism for mm. the people that are left. So, yeah, it doesn't have the effect of totally killing something. Uh, and, and I don't know that Silverlight's that easy. I, I mean, it's, it, it's certainly... If you're going to do something pretty simple with it, it's going to be a whole lot easier than Objective C. But if you're going to do something innovative and interesting with it, now now you got a fairly tall hill to climb there, mm. 
as yeah. evidenced by the fact. I mean, I feel a whole lot better at this point in time about Silverlight's prospects if I saw a lot more really compelling user experiences in it. And I don't. I mean, you know, you go to Silverlight.net and you browse through the gallery, and and the vast majority of the programs there are very, very ordinary. Uh, and and that's disappointing to me because I see the potential for so much more. What do you? I guess you know. I look at the gallery and I'm fairly impressed. So I, you always have a deeper vision of this than I do. Like, what are you looking for? I'm looking. I'm looking for interaction patterns. I'm looking for things that make things better for the user. There's a lot of flashiness in the silver gallery. Yeah. But there really is. A, 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 well, let's put it this way. Let's let's just break down some loose percentages. You put the stuff on there, and now somewhere between half and two-thirds of the applications are traditional UI dressed up with pretty colors. Okay. Okay? So I take them right out. I, I just don't see that, that they're adding any significant amount of value. Yeah. And then what's left tends to have one or two interesting elements, but it isn't a cohesive overall experience. It isn't something that you go, you know, the person that designed that, is inside the mind of their user. They really understand what that user wants. It's more a matter of, gosh, here's some neat technology. Let me show this off. And that's a completely different attitude to take when you go into designing a user interface. And, and to, you know, I guess it's okay when you first get started and when something's pretty new. Certainly, I like the idea of experimentation. I like to see people trying different things. But the problem I see with experimentation on Silverlight.net and in general, some of the other applications that are written, is that people experiment once, yeah, and then they stop. And, mm. and from from my perspective, that's just, you're doing it wrong. You know, a scientist would tell you, you keep trying different experiments to sort of isolate what's good and bad about each individual thing that you try. And I don't see very much of that. Uh, I've, I've done, of course, some sessions over the last few years on this process of multiple prototyping. And those are some of the most popular sessions I've ever done. And, and fundamentally, the session is expressing a very, very simple idea, which is that as an industry, we seem to have this mentality of a prototype. We create the prototype for a product. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, that's just fundamentally wrong to me because there's so much you could do. Why do you restrict yourself to just one? Um, and, you know, in older technologies, you could kind of get away with that because there weren't that many different things you could try. But now we have all these degrees of freedom. We go through this process where we do one, we put it aside, we imagine a completely different way of doing it, put that aside, and try to have several. And when I start to look at the applications done in Silverlight or on the, in the gallery on Silverlight.net, I don't see the evidence that people are really experimenting in that rich sense to try four or five things and then let the users filter that down to the, to the experience that's really compelling. I don't see that very often. And the surprising thing about it is to me is that I believe that's the fastest way to get to the ultimate user interface. I think it's faster than creating a single prototype and trying to go through n number of cycles with user feedback because I think you're more likely to hit in the right direction in one of your experiments than you are to keep course correcting to to something that 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 the users uh, that's optimal for the users. So I think it's faster and you get better results if you do the multiple prototype thing and I don't see many people that are trying to do that. It's yeah. almost like we could build a CSS Zen garden for Silverlight and recognize or for, for XAML in general. Yeah, for XAML in general. The key being here is one thing, the same thing. Every one of these apps does the same thing. 
but it's about how you do it, the representation of it. You know, the, the beauty of CSS Zen Garden is the same copy every time, right? It's about the formatting, right? They're yeah. showing off CSS. I'd stop making different apps. Let's make a reference app and then give you the opportunity to come up with lots of different ways to do it. That's really what you're talking about, this prototyping. That is, but it goes beyond cosmetics so that it's into interaction patterns so that in the session that I do on multiple prototyping, I show four different interaction patterns that we tried out wow. for an application we worked on, the famous .NET Rock CD episode, and show some of the screen comps that we did. And you look at those ideas, and they're just all over the map. I mean, they're wildly different, but you've got team, uh, uh, what I think is a very talented team. I have two great business partners. Gary Bailey and, and, and David Garcia are just, just really sharp, creative people. And, and together, we throw all these ideas out there. We throw them in the mix, and we try a lot of different things. And, and when people see how many different things you could do, that tends to open their mind a little bit. Right. Now, not everybody gets it, but some people kind of get inspired by that. I've, I've had emails from people saying, you know, this just... This has made me unsatisfied with every user interface I've ever created, so I'm going to go try to do better. Yeah, and it's an interesting point. That's the whole thing about a, a real... You're, you're, now you're talking about what a gallery really ought to be. Is gallery is inspiration. Yeah. That you, you can do stuff better. So uh, so that, that area, I, I would like to think that that's going to become kind of a, an accepted practice, that you do more experimentation, you do more different prototypes, but you know, a lot of things I thought have thought were obvious in, in our in our software development processes for a long time have failed to sort of make the grade as 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 generally accepted practices. So I've stopped predicting whether I'm right about stuff like that or not. <laughs> I mean, I, you know me, I'm, I just I guess I have this contrarian streak about me. No, no, yeah. I mean, it shows up in places like I go I go down <laughs> to Tech Ed, and I guess I just every time I go on stage at Tech Ed. I have these audiovisual people running around with really quizzical looks on their face. Yeah. Be- because I'm never doing things the way they expect. <laughs> I'm I'm not giving them slides beforehand. See, I, there are times when I might be using slides but I don't want the audience to see them first. Right. Yeah. Well, I can't turn them into the tech ed people, can I? No, you can't. Cuz right. as soon as I do, they're going to stick them on the share. So now, you know, I'm I'm following the cracks doing things that they're not expecting. I right. hope they're moving stuff around on stage if I got no place to stand right. and talk to the audience. Oh, but I hate that. And uh so, I, you know, I'm the I'm the contrarian that's just I've I've kind of let my inner contrarian out over the last couple of years nice. to the point where I just don't try to block it anymore. I mean, I see it, you know, you you guys have seen this because you've been there before. You've seen the speaker instructions are the same every year. Yes. It's, and, and they tell you, wear black or khaki pants. Right. And every year I ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> first, first of all, I don't even have black pants except for the pants for my tux, right? Right. And, and I, you know, I, we wear jeans most of the time. I wear khakis every once in a while. Uh, I'm thinking maybe next year. I was thinking of going to an antique shop, finding some of those pants from the '60s. You know, the flowered oh, hippie man. pants. Oh <laughs> man, really? Like with the with the vertical stripes? Yeah, no, no, no. The big the big Hawaiian flower version. You got see, you guys are too young to remember these. I was a teenager <laughs> when these came out. I remember ugly pants. Oh yeah, well you've probably seen some of them around. Um, yeah, my father used to wear them all the time. And and I'm having a severe reaction against logoed shirts. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I'm to the point where I just cringe when I put on a shirt with somebody's logo. I mean, I went out 
to one of the local clothing stores and bought a bunch of cheap, plain shirts to wear yeah. so I could go for a couple of weeks with no logos. And I sent a bunch of my logo shirts to Goodwill. So, you know, I, can, I just imagine some homeless guy wearing a Tech Ed speaker shirt. Yeah, so I like that a lot. For some reason, that just cracks me up. I, Makes me happy. Yeah, my wife went through all my closet and took all my logo shirts yeah, and sent them awesome. off to Salvation Army. So, yeah, you got to know there's a bunch of people out there running around with, you know, all these different conference speaker T-shirts. <laughs> that is funny. So I'm just resisting that homogenization. Uh, you know, my job title, I tend to put contrarian or troublemaker or something like that. Uh, I, I play joke slides when people walk in. Because right. I'm just... You know, I'm trying to get away from this standard, boring conference experience. Right. I, I don't see what possible good it does for people to sit there before sessions and be bored. Right. I'd, I'd like to see more innovation. And TechEd's one of the worst about it. Their slides, for example, their slide template has all kinds of marketing nonsense. Man, I strip that stuff right out yeah. if I use their template at all. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not putting up a special slide with the single word demo on it. Okay, yeah. I'm just not going to do that. Really? You couldn't figure out I'm doing a demo? <laughs> <laughs> when the slides disappeared, wasn't that a hint? <laughs> this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who want me to tell you about JustMock, Telerik's mocking tool. And unlike most mocking tools, JustMock can work with non-virtual methods, sealed classes, and static methods and classes, giving you complete control over your code. And of course... You get that great Telerik quality and support. You can read more and download the tool at Telerik.com slash JustMock. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. Hey, uh, Donnie Diaz is on the line from, uh, where are you calling from, Donnie? I'm calling from Philly. We're just outside of Philly. Okay. You get you, and you have a man crush on Billy. <laughs> I definitely do. Um, I actually we hosted Billy at the Philly.net uh, user groups uh, a couple of year, a couple of months ago. Maybe actually probably like last year. And uh, absolutely the best presentation I've ever been to. Um, and uh, since there, I've been having a, a crush on him. Um, <laughs> That's gratifying. The <laughs> Philadelphia group was about a hundred people, and it was a tremendous group. I had a I had a fabulous time there. Just a completely free flow sort of thing. Although, did you guys have that one fella who just had to question everything? I, I think <laughs> the that one was guy him. And, and and I had a some, but 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 you know I, I had some good give and take with it. But it was a it was a tremendous group. I had a great time there. Yeah, I think I think every single group uh, in in the U.S. has one of those guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know, a really great user group leader when the speaker comes up says, "Oh, by the way, it's that guy." Yes. Just lets you know in advance. <laughs> That's right. The, the the thing to know is that if you guys if you don't have one of those guys, it's probably you. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the rule of playing poker. Isn't That's it? right. <laughs> If you're not the mark, if you can't figure out who the, the mark, mark is, is it you're you. the mark. I remember doing a uh, talk at VS Live or VBits. I can't remember which it was, but it was years ago. And some guy, you know, in the, I think it was like the front row or the third row, he asked me a question that was, that was so, was such a run on sentence, Faulkner would have taken a nap. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, it was like, Hey, I got a question about this thing because when the blah 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 some because when I was saying I was saying and I just want to know because that I was doing it, you know, and it went on for like five minutes. And after that, I just looked at him. I said, "That was the longest sentence I've ever heard in my." 
Which is kind of mean because you know the guy's just trying to find an yeah, answer. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I mean, I don't mean be, try to be mean about it because actually the guy I was referring to asked a really great question. He pressed it a little harder than I would have liked, but it was about consistency in user interfaces. Yeah. Uh, he was talking about, well, you know, I'm, I'm showing all this whiz-bang, new WPF experimentation sort of stuff, and he asked the very sensible question of, well, gosh, you know, we've been taught consistency. Why aren't we, why aren't we doing that? And, you know, my basic answer to him was we lost that when the web came along anyway, so why, why are we still talking about it? And that 25-year-old technology, the standards that we set back then, uh, don't necessarily apply today. We need to experiment and find some new standards. Mm. And, and I'm afraid he wasn't happy with that audience, although uh, with that with that answer. Although I felt like it was a good question he asked. I, I think you actually handled it great. I know exactly who you're talking about. And uh, you know, for for us or for blue badges, you know, it's it's kind of hard to to be mean. You know, it, it, it takes a lot to kind of hold yourself back and just try to be as polite as you can. But sometimes. There's just some people that just drive you nuts, and, and it's very hard to, to even control yourself. But I, I think you handle it pretty well. Well, you know, well, geeks aren't known for their social graces. <laughs> yeah, I try to take that into account. And I never really, I've never really had anybody who was just outright nasty and rude. It was, you know, some people press their issues a little harder than I'd like. But, but in general, I've, I, don't th- I can't think of a single time where I've really gotten into uh, a serious sort of clash of personalities with, with somebody at a user group. Uh, so, so that certainly wasn't the case there. And that, as I said, that was just an extremely satisfying experience to, to go to Philadelphia and do that, do that group. Uh, I don't get to as many user groups uh, in the last year or two, so it's a, um, it, it's a real treat now when I get to go to a big one because uh, I, I'm so busy with things, and we don't have quite as much of the, um, the, the, the free-flowing money to get people around as we did in the early days of .NET, so I don't get to go as much. When I was, uh, the first time I ever saw Don Box speak, which I didn't, you know, I wasn't around for the phenomena that, you know, the back in the day, because I wasn't a C++ programmer, first of all, you know, I was doing VB. And um, so I saw him speak and, and I, I raised my hand, I had a question, and I prefaced my question was with, uh, can I ask a question? I've got a blah, 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 and I asked my question, you know, and he went on and he looked at me and he goes, no, you may not ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's always one somewhere. And usually the best thing to do is sort of look at him and says, I've been told about you. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> I've been warned. I know about you. But I also think that generally speaking, the, these days in the industry, we can agree to disagree. Yeah. I think if you've had a, enough experience in software development, you already know now that the tooling doesn't guarantee success or failure. It's the skill set. And things change so fast that the lessons you learned two years ago may or may not apply today. Yeah, right. And so, you, I, you know, I do think from talking to people at conferences and talking to my own clients and customers – uh, I do think that you're right about that, 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 that the majority, let's call it somewhere between two-thirds and 80% of the development community is tuned into that. But, you know, there's, there's certainly a group that isn't. Um, they, I, I, I've been thinking about the folks who really aren't so, so tolerant about, about other diverse opinions and such. And I'm starting to get – I've been – I read a lot of history. I don't know if you guys know that or not. I, I, I just finished a fabulous book 
on Byzantine history, which I had never studied before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then that led into some stuff on, you know, the Middle Ages and feudalism and things like that. And um, I was thinking about comparison of guilds into the mentality of some people in the software industry today. Mm-hmm. Is I think there are some people who who really kind of look at software development as a guild, or at least they'd like it to be. Yes. I mean, they want you to learn and follow the rules of the guild, you know, certain terminologies, code words, whatever you want to call it. And part of that guild mentality is to believe that what you do is so complex that other people can't understand it without years of training and that everybody's supposed to kind of do it the same way. And, and you know, they're just supposed to take the word of the guild on how things are done. And, and I, see, I see that mentality on display a lot in discussion threads, especially when you get into the issue of complexity. Uh, you know, that's a big concern of mine for a long time. And I read a lot of those threads. And, you know, I'll go on about stuff you got to learn, all the stuff to know to get things done, database and SQL and object orientation and ADO.net and WCF and UI stacks and security and unit testing and patterns and agile methods. And, and uh, you know, some of us, that big majority, I think, point out that that's just overwhelming. It's more than a lot of people in the industry are capable of assimilating. They're just not going to learn how to do it. But some every time I see one of those threads almost, somebody pops in and says, well, if people can't learn all those things, they don't need to be doing development. Nice. I mean, you guys have seen that comment, haven't you? Absolutely. Yep. And that is just unbelievably arrogant and condescending. And, and I, I, I hate that, that, that there is a segment of our community that believes that, because yeah. I think that is, is just, just so off-putting to the rest of the world. It mm. throws up barriers between us and the people we're trying to help, the business people and the users. And, uh, I, you know, I... I I know that it's it's kind of, it's kind of akin to that way members of a guild believe people outside the guild ought not be able to do the same work as guild members and just do what they say. And I just don't like that guild-like attitude. It's not just a guild, it's a mob dynamic too. I mean, it just it it happens everywhere. It's human nature, I think. You know, we're in the know and you're not. So Actually, one of my reasons for for my main crush on Billy is his ability to kind of distill the uh, BS uh, in the technical industry that, that we belong to and, and basically just come up with his, not his own ways, but basically just come up with ways to, to provide business value and not really being all about the geekiness of, of, of the technology. And, and one of the questions that I have for, for Bill was, you know, how, how do you balance, how do you make that balance on, you know, whether to follow the, the current trend and just, you know, stay focused on providing business value to, to, to your customers, which is where I think what you're really known for. Well, you know, I am, I'll I'll take good ideas from anywhere I can find them, um, and and that is that's the starting point. Is I look at anything that somebody suggests as a possibility, but I, you know I've been in this industry a long time. I've been in it for well over thirty. I've been getting paid to write software for over thirty years now, and so I'm going to test anything new against reality. I'd like to believe I'm open to new things. One of the lessons I talk about in my session on prototyping is you need to challenge almost every principle of UI development that you've ever known because if you don't challenge them, you won't discover whether there are better alternatives. So I'm, I'm into to, to challenging things, but I also say at that point, you know, some of the things that you that, that's the way you've always done them are going to still be the best way to do them, and you don't need to change. So I won't change just because something is trendy, and I won't change just because there are a lot of people who say I should. I may try something and see whether or not it fits and whether or not I derive value from it. And if it doesn't, I don't, you know, 
I, I, it, it's probably in, it's kind of an, here I have calling other people arrogant, and I'll probably say something pretty arrogant here, but you know, if there are a thousand people out there saying that technique X works, but it doesn't work for me, then it's a thousand one they're wrong about my situation. Because I know more about my situation than they do. So um, I, I'm, I'm testing them against reality all the time. One of, the, one of the, the chief things that allows me to do that is that I do have two great partners. In particular, Gary Bailey, my longtime partner, has probably the best feel for balancing technical needs against business needs of anybody I've ever met. And I, I, I mean, I don't care what company you're talking about, inside Microsoft or not, he's the best at that. So that means that if he and I sit down and go through something and come to a, a consensus between ourselves on whether or not it fits, chances are very, very high that we've got it figured out. Uh, between the two of us, we can usually optimize. So that's one hint I, that I want to give people is if, if you're doing it in isolation, if you're evaluating something in isolation, it's easy to follow the herd mentality or, or let your own prejudices reject something out of hand that you don't feel comfortable with. You can go wrong both ways when you're doing it on your own. But if you have somebody you know and you trust to kind of hash the situation out with, your chances of coming up with a good idea of whether it applies to your situation go up dramatically. And if you can get more than one, even better. So, you know, I think that the key is to have people in your circle of advisors and colleagues and teammates who, who have some of that desire to do things on the business side and have some of that intuition about it, have enough experience, and that that's, that's a kind of collaborative thing to figure out whether or not something has business value. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Yeah, something I've noticed with all the really talented people we've ever spoken to is that they have a great circle and that they touch it regularly. They, they they have their intuition and they have their own instinct, but they're always willing to challenge it and take some criticism or take some input around those things and, and shape their view that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes you look better if you do. Yeah. Because people, people look at this stuff that we've done, and I'm the guy on stage showing it, and people think I did it. Right. Okay? When, in fact, the stuff that people like most about the applications that we do, the look and feel and color, is done by my other partner, David Garcia, for the most part. I mean, we all contribute ideas, as I said before, but, you know, he, he gets a lot of the credit. We couldn't do something that nice without him. And so, yeah, I get the credit for things that other people do right. by being part of that circle. Yeah, yeah it's, and it's par for the course. There's always a group of folks behind the, the, the front man who's pulled something off. And so, you know, I'd like to think it's a good deal for all concerned, uh, particularly my longtime partner, Gary, doesn't really want to do the speaking thing. Actually, I put him on stage, and he's good. Yeah. But he doesn't really want to do it. He, he's kind of more of a private guy, and uh, he likes working on interesting problems. And so I'm the guy that kind of helps bring him interesting problems, and we work on them together. And uh, he's pretty happy with that arrangement. So, 
So I think we both kind of get something out of it that suits our own proclivities. Yeah, and it's uh, you definitely you are a rainmaker, Billy. You know, <laughs> you have that knack that people want to to hear what you're talking about and know more what's going on. So yeah, you make it rain. You bring stuff in. Well, certainly I've seen the demand for some things go up in in the last the last six or eight months. Demand for advanced UI stuff. Boy, it's been a long time coming. Sure, but it is starting to to accelerate. I'm starting to see a lot of increase from my training class. I think I'm going to, to Kuwait in a couple of months. Really? Wow, to do a, cool. To do a WPF training over there, which I think is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and, and so I'm starting to see a fair amount. And we're, we're balancing now several opportunities from people who have called us for the next thing that we're going to do. So I am starting to see that the demand go up. And that is gratifying to be able to kind of pick and choose the interesting things that you want, you're going to do. One of them is kind of an interesting touch kiosk thing. And, you know, there's, yeah, you get a lot of opportunities when you're getting out there talking to people, um, and if you've got at least part of what they know is required, they'll kind of give you a little bit of slack on the rest of it that, that you can figure it out as you go. That's part of part of sort of being out there a long time and, and having a reputation. So, uh, so yeah, I'm kind of in, enjoying things now, even if, even if I don't do things the way all the, all the mainstream influencing community thinks I ought to be doing them. Well, we have to remind everyone, because I remember... You jumped on the WPF bandwagon. I mean, it was 2007. We were doing recordings with you by early 2008, talking about the apps you'd built Yeah, at yeah. that point. I got in uh, late 2005, working on it myself, doing sessions in 2006. You jumped on the VB.net bandwagon, or the .net bandwagon before there was beta one. That, that's right, uh, because... You know, I'd been in, I'd been in the world of Visual Basic, and I thought Visual Basic in the '90s was a good, was the best balance we had then yeah. for writing business applications. But I could tell it had severe limitations. I was trying to write the equivalent of frameworks in that environment, and you really couldn't. You just didn't have the object-oriented capabilities to do it. And VB.NET clearly fixed a lot of the things that Classic VB didn't have. So I got very, very excited about it. It was pretty clear to me. I'd worked on Java for a few months. Uh, in 97, and it was pretty clear to me that .NET took what Java kind of figured out and, and, and did, I think, a, a better job. So I did jump on it pretty early. And many um, people don't know this about Billy, but he didn't like uh, data binding in .NET 1.0, so he wrote <laughs> his own. <laughs> and, I did. I, and it turns out that it was better. Yeah. And then well, .NET 2.0 came around, and they were using a lot of the ideas that you had. Well, it was better for our purposes, and, and, and of course, we got to do a restricted sort of set. I don't like for things to sound any more impressive than they are. I mean, yeah, I think I did a pretty good job and a pretty good design with that, and it certainly helped a, a major project succeed. But, you know, I get to do things in a sandbox for our problems, whereas Microsoft has the ch challenges of kind of satisfying everybody, which means it's a lot harder work. On the other hand, they did finally manage to do that with data binding. They, the data That's binding true. in WPF and Silverlight is so good. I did not write my own. I'm not sure I could have. And and slugging your way through the early parts of WPF. In fact, I remember talking to a Microsoft person who was looking for examples. Like you got to go look at what Billy's done. And and yeah, you were so far ahead. Even I think the Microsoft folks couldn't figure out what you'd done. Well, yeah, that's you know that surprised me when I, when we put that .NET Rocks TV episode out there. I started getting notes from inside Microsoft, and then uh, when in in the 2009 Tech Ed. We demonstrated that app as the main app in the WPF area of the exhibit floor because there there aren't any others. Well, I'm you sure know there what? are others. They're just, they're just private. But gosh, you know, that's I it. want people to put some more out there so I can steal some ideas. Well, that's it. You just nailed it. I mean, any I think companies you you're a very in a very 
good situation where your client was, you know, willing to say, yes, go ahead and do that. But people don't realize the resources that went into to building that. I mean, that uh, it couldn't have been done on a demo app budget, could it? No, it couldn't. And, and that's, you know, I think that's a common misunderstanding of people that look at it. For, for all of our, our professional existence, we've known that if we do the surface of an app, people think it's done. There's a psychological thing about yeah. it. And, and, and part of that psychological thing is to think that certain things are easier than they are once you see the finished product. So people do see that finished product and, and, and don't realize what went into doing it. That's one of the reasons I like doing that session on all the prototyping. And you can tell they don't get it because I've seen requests even from within Microsoft to say, could you release the source code of that to the community? And you know, I go, wait, wait a minute now. First of all, I don't own it. The client does. Secondly, we're talking about plus or minus a million dollars worth of development, and you just want to give it away. Right. And, and they don't realize that it's that much. They think it's something that somebody whipped up in a couple of weekends. Right. Well, because Microsoft development's always easy, didn't you hear? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> there was, I put up a slide in, uh, in one of my sessions at TechEd that uh, one, one guy called, the, he, put up a, uh, he put up a picture on Flickr, I think, of that slide. He said it was his favorite slide he saw at TechEd. Basically, it, it said um, it was a graph over time. Uh, difficulty time versus time, and it had a horizontal line that said how easy it looks in Microsoft demos, and it had a <laughs> slanted line going up that said how easy or how how hard it really is to do. Yeah, yeah, it, it gets harder all the time to do things, and 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 I, I wish that everybody concerned, including all the folks within Microsoft, would come clean on the fact it's not hard. I mean, it's not it's not easy. It's it, they don't need to pretend that it is. They need to. They need to be. I think a little bit more blunt and candid about that. That would help them understand the nature of the problem. They intimidate people in ways that that I don't think they even realize. Back when I used to teach calculus a long time ago, uh, I taught the same calculus subject, same first quarter calculus, three quarters in a row, two sections per mm-hmm. quarter. So the first quarter, first section I'm teaching it, somebody asks about a homework problem, and I have to kind of struggle a little bit with it and, and you know, sort of go through the, the process of thinking through the problem. By the time I finish, the sixth time I've done it, if somebody asks a question, I just, I've already done it four times before. I go to the, I go to the board and just, here, whip it out. And the problem is that somebody in the class told me, said, Billy, that's intimidating to people. I mean, what, what people are not seeing is the thought process and the struggles and such. Yeah, and the time. You're, you're, yeah, and the time. You're hiding all of that, and that gives people a, 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 the wrong impression about what it's going to take to do things. Right. And I think we need to see some of that in, in the development community yeah. so that there's more exposure of, here's all the failed approaches. Here's the things that didn't work before I got to the point where something did. What do you think yep. about stuff like Sketchflow to sort of create that prototype model more and separate between the real code and the and the sample code? Well, Sketchflow is good for a certain class of apps. If yeah. you've got kind of a website navigation model to it, it, it works real well. Uh, if you're going to explore um, dramatically new interaction patterns, then Sketchflow isn't quite as helpful. Right. Although I love their control templates. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will get their control templates and use them on even when I'm not using Sketchflow. Because really? you can do that. Yeah, sure. You can go grab those control templates. They're just control templates. Right. So uh, all that stuff that makes it look like handwritten sort of 
text boxes and such, is really just a control template. Okay. So I grab those for my own prototyping purposes. Right. And, and now it has that same cosmetic effect, which psychologically says to people, this is just an idea. It's yeah. not done, which what Sketchflow is trying to do. Very effective at uh, keeping people from taking your prototype and running with it. Yeah, it's the digital cocktail napkin. Yeah, and, and, and sort of the big, big benefit for developers is people don't look at it and go, gosh, you've got the UI figured out. I guess you're almost done, aren't right. you? Right. Or focus on, can you change that blue? Right, I really exactly. don't like that blue. Can you move this three pixels yeah, over? Yeah. yeah, you just get away from, from stuff like that. That's another big benefit of the multiple prototype approach mm-hmm. is that people stop arguing about minutia and trivia uh, about what, the exact right, positioning. Con- because you're giving them the ability to make decisions at a much higher level of the interaction pattern that suits them better. They're adding more value, I think, in a case like that. And it's a lot less frustrating for the development team. Because, you know, if you only give people one choice, you only give them one screen, and you ask for their feedback, well, I mean, they feel like they need to tell you something. So if all they can find is trivialities, that's what they tell you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a classic uh, uh, statistics problem is that people will always give you an answer when you ask a question. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> true. Even when their actual answer is moo or I don't know or should, I don't care. Many right? times yeah. it should be moo or I don't know. Um, yeah. I'll tell, tell you another, another idea I've been doing some thinking about that was inspired by, um, by watching Bill Buxton's keynote at Mix. Bill Buxton's a smart, smart guy. Yeah, and, no kidding. People in this industry ought to pay more attention to him, including a lot of the people that work at the same company he does. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. It's hard Um, to argue with you, though, Billy. It's true. And and he was he was he crystallized something for me. Uh, Mr. Diaz was talking a moment ago about the fact that you know that I crystallize some ideas for people. I'd like to think I do that sometimes, but I certainly look for that in other people. And Bill Buxton's obviously a. Uh, in some areas, richer, smarter, deeper thinker than me. Um, so he crystallized something for me because we, you know, we talk about a lot about the construction metaphor. In fact, we talk about having architects on our software development project projects. But mm-hmm. he said, you know, what we have aren't really architects. What we have is much more analogous to structural engineers in the construction world. Really. And I thought that was a good way to crystallize something that had bothered me for a long time, is that, is that we don't, you know, the construction metaphor is used very loosely. Yep. And, and we really typically, the typical team, the typical development team, does not have somebody that plays the role of an architect in the construction world, right. who is the vision holder and the designer. That's kind of a, because architecture is fundamentally a design-oriented activity. Yes. And, and what people do in in as the architect, the enterprise architect or whatever in software, really isn't that much of a design activity. It's much more, will the system, you know, it's designed at a, at a more, much more granular level, yeah, I guess is yep. a better way of saying it. It's engineering. They're it's trying, engineering. Will yeah, this will, hold together? Will this system uh, withstand the stresses that we want to put it to? Right. And, and, and there's certainly a need for that function, and I don't want to suggest that there isn't, but I hate the fact that we have that job title and it overloads and obscures the fact that many teams don't have the vision holder for is this what the user actually needs is it designed to their needs is it is it appealing to them in an emotional sense right. which which I think is important and a lot of devs clearly don't so I I've, I've, I've been given that idea a fair amount of, of thought because I thought that was 
a really good crystallization of something been bothering me. But it's also there's an iterative process there because you know I've gone through this huge renovation where I watched my architect and my structural engineer argue back and forth. Yeah. The architect drew what made the customer happy, and the structural engineer explained why you can't build that. Right. Right. <laughs> it will fall over. You need both. Yeah. And and I wish we had both, and in many cases we don't. And so the the structural engineer slash what we call architect gets to run wild with plumbing, yes. and 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 all the engineering he wants to do. So you know you may be building a residence, but he's much happier designing structural engineering for skyscrapers. That's what he does. Well, the other side is that if, you know, when you don't have that counterbalance you tend to have situations where engineers experiment with materials or, you know, they go off on their own tangent. Yeah, yeah. You, and, you and need then, that collaboration to keep sanity in the process. And from a functional perspective, if every building was designed by an engineer, it would just be a giant cube. Yes, apparently the engineers took over in the 1960s, <laughs> you know, and built they built concrete cubes, right? <laughs> because, I mean, that's from a... Because uh, look at it from an engineering perspective. A giant cube is the cheapest from a materials perspective. Yep. It is the most energy efficient design that you can make. It's, it's, it, you know, it's a, you sort of stamp out each floor. Yep. It, it, it's, it's cheapest from a, from a construction standpoint. So, you know, it's, it's, that's what an engineer would produce, but we don't want to live in a world of all cubes. Yes. And some and, buildings, some, some buildings don't need to be cubes. Well, and there's a subtlety to the good synthesis of architecture and engineering. It doesn't have to be that far from the cube, right? I think about that lovely building in Malmo, Sweden, where the, each floor is two and a half degrees rotated to the left of oh, the previous right. floor. It looks like you wrung it out. Yeah, it looks like it's twisted up. Right, but really, just a tiny change. It's a and and still an engineering beauty. Yeah, but there's an elegance to that that just amped the whole thing up. It doesn't take a lot of design. And I would like to believe that even the people who are doing the structural engineering slash architecture of our systems would be more proud of the end result if that tension were there. Yes, that even though it would be harder work for them because of the trade off involved, they wouldn't just kind of get to go do whatever they wanted, that the end result would be more appealing, more satisfying to the people it was created for, and they would get more credit out of it, and I think they'd find it a more fulfilling experience if they tried it. Yeah, and I, I think when you do that well, you do get that nice balance, but it, it comes from the respect of the two roles. And and unfortunately, I think a lot of people in the software world just want to sort of they want to stay code-centric, they don't want to be design-centric, they want to push design aspects on somebody else and just not think about it. Um, it, it, you know, you ask teams and they say, oh, we have a web designer. And that's, you know, that's not what I'm talking about at all. That's more the equivalent of an interior decorator. Right. Right. Somebody that comes in after the construction's figured out well along and just figures out some of the final cosmetics. And that is not what I'm talking about at all. So, uh, so yeah, some people seem resistant to that idea of a visionary architect. And, 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 uh, I'd, I'd like to see that as, I'd like to see our processes and our team structures rethought at least not necessarily for every application i mean uh, okay i know some applications are just kind of let's stamp it out because we've got to do it we've only got a dozen users you know who cares whether you're not going to get that much benefit from investing a huge amount in satisfying that dozen users and i know that but on the other hand we do some massive enterprise level kinds of things i've seen in healthcare so many systems just flounder because they don't have that in-touch nature with the ultimate end user. Yeah. 
And and so and I, I first of all I think that's wasteful, and secondly, as I said, I think it'd be a lot more fulfilling for everybody involved if if uh, if we would rethink our process. Well, Billy, what's next for you? Are you speaking anywhere? Are you going to any of these conferences in Europe that are coming up here in the fall? Not going to Europe um, anytime soon. I might go back. There was some interest. I might go back and visit our friends in Norway and do some training there. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, looks like I might like I might be there and. December or something, which oh. I'm not sure I want to be in Oslo in December. No, no offense to the Oslo, to the Norwegians, okay, but... Um, and then uh, we got VS Live coming up on campus at Microsoft yeah. um, in August, so I'll be there. Rocky and I, I think Rocky's your next guest, he yep. and I will be sharing a workshop at VS Live. I'll be at Fall Dev Connections in Las Vegas, which, man, that conference just seems to just swell every year. Yeah, it really does. So I can't imagine how many people are going to be there this year. I think it's going to be huge this year. Yeah, it's I think be it's going to be really big, and I've got some really fun sessions to do there, uh, including some Windows Phone 7 stuff, which I'm just starting to fool around with. Oh, now. great. I'm doing a session on data on Windows Phone 7, and, and you know, that's I, I've, I've been too busy to do it until comparatively recently, but that's just one of... One of the wonderful aspects of having spent time understanding XAML-based technologies is that the programming model is so transportable. You have to rethink which parts of it you're going to use, but the fact that you know it. You know, I can go to the phone and think, well, I want an interface that does this, and I know how to make Silverlight do that. Right. Which is just has been tremendously gratifying. And, I'm man, I'm looking forward to getting a Windows 7 device in my hand. I'm I'm a long-suffering Windows Mobile (laughs) customer. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so I, I'm really looking forward to uh, to the changeover sometime in a few months from now. So, yeah, I got uh, got a fair amount of, of interesting things going on coming up. Uh, um, I'm still trying to get my book done, and yeah. it's it's a slow, slow thing. Um, we got a I'm, video I'm series to... coming up here, uh, a, D, um, a Franklin's Net uh, DVD of training that Billy and I did. Well, Billy did. I recorded it and sat by and said. Wow, that's cool. Oh, but, don't, uh, let, don't let Carl. <laughs> Carl. Carl's the proxy for the people who, who, who need to be asking questions of the presenter and saying, well, you know, that's pretty interesting, but can you tell me more about this? That's right. And I think that's what really sets that training off, Carl, is that, you know, there's a lot of video training out there with talking heads that are just kind of talking to the, in a monotone to the, it's true. <laughs> to, the to the camera. You, and, you... And, and let me tell you, you're not going to talk. First of all, I don't talk in a monotone anyway. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. But, you know, you got somebody like Carl asking questions of you. It's going to be a lot more interesting and conversational. So I'm looking forward to seeing the end results there. I hope a lot of people uh, find that helpful in, in kind of bootstrapping themselves through Silverlight 4. And it's very conceptual, as Carl can tell you. It's not just about the features. Right. It's kind of from a conceptual standpoint how you Oh, use absolutely. Them. And there's there's stuff in there that's go- absolute gold that you won't find anywhere else. Very good stuff. And uh, oh. that should be we're we're just wrapping up production on that, so you should see that in a few weeks at least uh, on Franklin's.net. Well, Billy, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to hear you speak, and and I'm looking forward to more. I love talking to you guys every time. Say hi to Rocky for me, and uh, finish out the the, the the day, and then go take a well deserved rest. Oh, it's gonna be awesome. Let me tell you. Going to Block Island tomorrow with my daughter. It's going to be fabulous. All right. Thank you, Billy. You're welcome. Bye, gentlemen. All right. Take care. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. 
online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the 